You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. There's this thing that happens in the United States so regularly that you can set a clock by it. And I'll warn you now, it's not a very nice clock. I think everyone can agree, actually, it's a pretty terrible clock. Because it's a clock that goes off whenever this country experiences a mass shooting large enough to attract national attention. And even that sentence is terrible. Because there's so many mass shootings, let alone all the regular shootings, that at this point, an event really does have to work to stand out and make us take notice. Which again, I think everyone should be able to agree, is terrible. Whatever else you think, whatever else you believe to be the underlying problems or factors, that state of affairs is bad, right? Okay, well, I'm glad we're starting on the same page here. Back to the clock. Whenever a really disturbing mass shooting takes place in the United States, it goes off. I'm sure you've heard it. It went off after Salvador Ramos stormed into Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas on May 24th, 2022. Turned left into a schoolroom into a classroom. Officers are there, the initial officers, they receive gunfire. They don't make entry initially because of the gunfire they're receiving. But we have officers calling for additional resources. Approximately an hour later, U.S. Border Patrol tactical teams arrive. They make entry, shoot and kill the suspect. Now it turns into a rescue operation. How do we save these children? How do we save these children? That time, the chimes sounded like Texas Governor Greg Abbott. I hate to say this, but there are more people who were shot every weekend in Chicago than there are in schools in Texas. And we need to realize that, that people who think that, well, maybe if we could just implement tougher gun laws, it's going to solve it. Chicago and L.A. and New York disproved that thesis. And so if you're looking for a real solution, Chicago teaches that what you're talking about is not a real solution. Our job is to come up with real solutions that we can implement. I think we're all used to hearing this clock. What about Chicago, it asks, over and over and over again. The chimes of the clock were particularly loud last week when a rooftop shooter took aim at a 4th of July parade in Highland Park, killing seven people and injuring scores more. 
My wife, Heather, is a summer camp director in the northern suburbs, so we first heard about the shooting via a rather opaque and officious email announcing that the park district was canceling its parade in light of what had just happened in Highland Park. And we both knew immediately what that most likely meant, which, again, I think we can all agree is terrible, right? My first instinct was to turn to Twitter to see what was going on, and what I found, littered throughout the fog of war conjecture and first-look videos, was the clock, ringing all across the internet. Typical Chicago, wrote one person. What do you expect? It's Chicago, said another. And there's an endless cavalcade of tweets saying, if gun laws worked, Chicago would be the safest city in America. It's such a common refrain that I'm already thinking about whether I really need to take this full two minutes to explain it. You've already heard these comments and read them. Maybe you've even made them. Or else you've made the rebuttals, which we've all already heard too. That Chicago, far from being the murder capital of the country that a lot of people and media say it is, doesn't even crack the top 10 of per capita gun deaths among U.S. cities. And that's true. The murder capital of the United States is Jackson, Mississippi, by an unhealthy margin with Gary, Indiana, the only other city in the country that comes close to giving it a run for the money. Even if you limit the competition to only large American cities with populations above 250,000, Chicago ranks ninth in per capita gun deaths, just below Cincinnati and above Washington, D.C. But Chicago is different from Jackson, Mississippi or Cincinnati, Ohio. It's much, much bigger. In terms of size and impact, Chicago isn't much like Gary, Indiana. It's more like New York and Los Angeles. Which brings us back to Governor Abbott's comments. And I know people like to try to oversimplify this. Uh, let's talk about some real facts. And, and that is, there are, quote, real gun laws in Chicago. There are, quote, real gun laws in New York. There are real gun laws in California. It's weird to me that Abbott would choose to mention New York and Los Angeles alongside Chicago because in terms of gun violence, the three are simply not at all comparable. For reference, the homicide rate in Jackson is a whopping and disturbing 69 per 100,000 people. The highest homicide rate for large cities belongs to St. Louis, Missouri with 50 per 100,000. Chicago's homicide rate is half that of St. Louis. 25 people are murdered here for every 100,000. Which is, I want to be absolutely clear, abysmal. It's terrible. Yes, it's a far cry from the top of the heap, but it is an unthinkable level of murder for a major city in a rich, industrialized nation. But New York and Los Angeles are different stories. In L.A., out of every 100,000 people, there were seven murders in 2020. And in New York? Three. Yes, you heard me. Three murders in New York City for every 100,000 residents. Not only is New York not among the most dangerous cities in America, it's actually one of the safest. If you wanted to, you could spend a lot of time digging into why, when asked about gun control in the wake of the killing of 19 small children, Greg Abbott chose those three cities as rebuttal examples. That's not what I'm here to do today, though. The thing that interests me is that there was a time when Abbott's comment would have made sense, a point at which the murder rates in New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago were roughly comparable and hideously, disastrously high. That time was a good while ago now, though. 
New York has arguably solved its gun problem, at least as much as an American city could hope to. And L.A.'s come a long way since its peak in 1992, when the number of murdered Los Angelinos hit four digits. Since that time, Chicago has more than halved its murder rate, too. But the second city is still on a fundamentally different level than its two big brothers. Today, we're going to look at why. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Usually, on this show, we look at bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that helped misshape our world. It's a history show, just like it says there in the subhead. But this is going to be a different kind of episode. Long-time listeners will know that this show comes to you from Chicago, and every episode ends in some sort of Chicago-centric trivia. I've lived in Chicago for the majority of my life and lived around Chicago, what we call Chicago land, for nearly all of it. Like most Chicagoans, I have some very complicated feelings whenever the What About Chicago bell goes off. Because on the one hand, I think most of us feel that when people bring up our city in this context, they're not acting in good faith. That a lot of people are quick to point to Chicago's violence when it makes a political point for them, but don't seem to care much any other time. A lot of us feel, with good reason, I believe, that Chicago has become a kind of code word. That it means liberal, or socialist, or poor, or especially black. And we're a proud city. We don't like being dragged out as a talking point for people who, frankly, don't seem to actually be very concerned about problems. And that's the other hand, because we do have problems. Problems that a lot of us feel like we can't talk about honestly, let alone address, in part because of those people who make us a talking point. And in part, let's be honest here, precisely because of our pride. So here's the deal. That question, the what about Chicago question, I'm going to try to answer it right now, or at least partially answer it. Not in the ways that you're probably used to. Not by pointing out that actually things here could be much worse, and actually they are much worse in other places, because while that's true, it's pretty cold comfort for anyone who just lived through a 4th of July weekend where 57 people were shot and 9 killed. Not in far-flung Highland Park, but right here, in this city that I love. Now, I should mention before we go any further that I am not a journalist or a scientist or a historian. What I am is a half-decent researcher who's got something of a knack for turning facts into stories. I should also warn you that whatever your political beliefs, you're probably going to find something in this episode that you won't like. I'm a very liberal guy, but my views on guns and gun control are uh, fairly unorthodox for my demographic, I think. But for this story, I am not going to have a whole lot to say about the typical conversation this country has about guns and gun control. Because frankly, I don't think the typical conversation we have about gun control has much to do with Chicago. In the same way that I feel conservatives don't talk about my city very honestly, I also think that liberals are not generally very interested in talking about it either. Usually, lefties, like myself, talk about guns in response to mass shootings, the ones big enough to capture national attention, like Uvalde, like Highland Park. We talk a lot about assault rifles, red flag laws, gun show loophole, high-capacity magazines, etc. 
I'm not going to spend much time on stuff like that because whether those things are good ideas or not, they wouldn't do much good here in Chicago. And that's what we're here to think about today. But there are things that would do a lot of good here and in cities across this country. What's more, most of them are things that pretty much everybody could agree are good ideas. You just might not have heard about them before. So, if you have ever wondered, what about Chicago? Or asked, what about Chicago? I hope you'll take a little time and listen to this. Because there's a problem here. And we need your help to fix it. Today's episode, Chicago. I'm going to begin with a little bit of that pride. Chicagoans have a poem written by the great Carl Sandburg, which all of us have heard and many of us can recite, because even though it was written more than 100 years ago, it still feels like home. Hog butcher for the world, tool maker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads and the nation's freight handler, stormy, husky, brawling, city of the big shoulders. A century out, we're still simple folk. We fight about pizza. We fight about baseball. We don't put ketchup on hot dogs. We've been trying to tell the world about the greatness of Jardinera for decades now, but you just won't listen. We're simple people, but there are still millions of us, and that means even our pizza fights end up complicated. So, when you take something that's already inherently complex, like gun violence, and you apply it to this big, sprawling, skyscraper-strewn metropolis, you're not going to get an easy answer. There are a lot of factors contributing to Chicago's gun problem, more than I could possibly hope to list, and their exact proportions and relationships are way beyond my abilities to explain. Hell, they're way beyond anybody's abilities, let alone mine. So, what I am here to tell you about doesn't have much to do with community investment, or violence reduction programs, or gangs, or policing, or even the Second Amendment. Instead, I'm going to focus on one thing, which is gun trafficking. Back in 2016, Chicago had an especially terrible year. The city had been used to having between four and 500 homicides annually, usually closer to four. But in 2016, there was a gigantic surge, 769 murders. That number really shook the city to its core, and the shaking was particularly felt on the fifth floor of City Hall, where Mayor Rahm Emanuel sat. Now, I I am no fan of Rahm's, but you have to hand it to the guy. He knows a little something about politics. And he could see that those 769 murders in 2016 were a real problem, both for the city and, more importantly, for his career. So, he commissioned a report to be made jointly with his office, the Chicago Police Department, and the University of Chicago Crime Lab to try to answer what you'd think would be a simple question. Where are all the guns in Chicago coming from? 
Up until 2014, it was against the law to sell guns in Chicago. But a federal judge found that prohibition to be unconstitutional, and the city quickly passed a new law regulating gun shops within city limits. Still, even though it has been technically legal to sell guns in Chicago for nearly a decade, there has yet to be a single gun store opened within city limits. Yet, every year, Chicago police recover around 7,000 firearms that are either used in the commission of a crime or possessed illegally. That is almost certainly a small percentage of the crime guns brought into the city each year. So again, where are they coming from? I'm going to ask that question a lot more times because it's kind of the whole enchilada, isn't it? Not just for violence in Chicago, but for violence everywhere. The catch in the other question, the bell-ringing question, what about Chicago, is that Chicago supposedly has really tough gun laws. I would argue we don't, not really, but there's no denying the simple fact that there isn't a single gun store in the city, right? Yet there are tens of thousands of guns flowing in every year and hundreds of murders. So the question, where are the guns coming from, is fundamental to understanding what, if anything, we can do about gun violence not only here in Cook County, Illinois, but all across the country. There's a good chance that you think you know where Chicago's guns come from, and there's an even better chance that you're wrong, which I promise we'll get to. But the answer is really hard to get your mitts around. It's really tough to say. So before we answer the difficult question of where the guns are coming from, let's take a look at why that question is so damn difficult to answer in the first place. In 2016, the city of Chicago, Illinois, had 769 murders, which prompted then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel to form a commission on guns in Chicago. But to understand why, both why there are so many murders and why a commission was necessary, we have to leave the city and travel east to Silver Spring, Maryland. And back in time to June 7, 1971. A few months earlier than that, Police had arrested a teenage newspaper boy for three burglaries in Prince George's County. The boy, looking to cut a deal, told police that he had also broken into another apartment at 1014 Quebec Terrace, apartment number two, in Silver Spring. He told the cops that inside he had seen some number of hand grenades, along with a bunch of hand guns. The guy who lived at 1014 Quebec Terrace number two was Kenyon Ballou who worked as a press operator for the Washington Post. Records showed that he did not have any hand grenades registered and that he had previously been arrested for carrying a concealed firearm. A little investigation, and I emphasize here for the future, a little investigation, turned up a witness who said he had seen Blue playing with some grenades in his backyard. The Prince George's County Police joined together with officers from Montgomery County and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. They got a search warrant and, on June 7, 1971, instituted a joint raid of 1014 Quebec Terrace No. 2. They entered the apartment complex via the laundry room, dressed like hippies, in order to blend in. At 8.30 p.m., ATF Special Agent William Seals knocked on Kenyon Blue's door. There was no response, so Seals shouted, Federal officers with a search warrant, open up. Still no answer, but Seals heard movement inside. 
Worried that their suspect would either escape or worse, the officers and agents deployed a battering ram and broke down the door. On the other side of the threshold was the source of the sound Seals had heard. Baloo had moved a couch in front of the door as a makeshift barricade. And speaking of Baloo, there he was, standing in the middle of the room, stark naked, and carrying a replica 1847 Colt revolver. Seals cried out, he's got a gun, fired a couple of rounds before taking cover behind a wall. A second officer followed, bursting into the room, shooting a fish tank. Then came Montgomery County police officer, Louis Ciamillo, who also fired, hitting Blue in the head. As Blue fell to the ground, his ball and cap pistol fired into the floor. Agents and officers rushed in, kicked the revolver away, called for medical assistance, and began their search. They found Baloo's girlfriend, Sarah Louise McNeil, in the bedroom, wearing only underwear and clutching another pistol. She surrendered without incident and stepped over Baloo's prone and bleeding body as she was escorted out. Baloo didn't die, but he was permanently paralyzed. The search found, quote, a large quantity of firearms, powder, ammunition, primers, fuses, and other firearm parts. Not to mention five grenades none of which were primed or armed. We'll get back to that. In the end, the government declined to prosecute Ballou, and Ballou sued the government. He lost the case, with the judge concluding that, quote, his injuries were the direct result of his own contributory negligence, which is to say, barricading the door and arming himself with a revolver. At the first callous glance, the Kenyan Ballou raid looks like something of a wash, Blue wasn't prosecuted for the guns and grenades, and the government was cleared for shooting him. But unbeknownst to Blue or McNeil or Seals or anyone else on the scene that night, June 7, 1971, was the turning point for guns in America. The gun control debate that residents of this country are by now well past used to didn't exist in 1971. The 1960s had seen a seemingly endless stream of high-profile violence that had rocked the nation and almost brought it to its knees. First, President John F. Kennedy had been assassinated in 1963. There has been an attempt, as perhaps you know now, on the life of President Kennedy. He was wounded in an automobile driving from Dallas Airport into downtown Dallas, along with Governor Connolly of Texas. They've been taken to Parkland Hospital there, where their condition is as yet unknown. We have just learned, however, ever that Father Huber, one of the two priests called into the room, has administered the last sacrament of the church to President Kennedy. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Civil rights leader Malcolm X followed in 1965. I heard shots, and I saw people crawling on the floor. I saw, and so I got down too. Then when I was looking out, and I saw um, someone look in amazement to the front. I knew they had shot my husband. He sustained one shot in the lower right chin and the other six hit him in the chest and uh, body. Then Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. Do they know about Martin Luther King? We have uh, wrapped it up the Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. And presumptive Democratic nominee Bobby Kennedy 
brother to John and eulogizer of Martin, just two months later. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? It's possible, ladies and gentlemen. It is possible. He has not only Senator Kennedy. Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. And another man, a Kennedy campaign manager, and possibly shot in the head. I am right here. Rayford Johnson has a hold of a man who apparently has fired the shot. That's it, Rayford. Get it. Get the gun, Rayford. Okay, now hold on to the guy. Hold on to him. It felt like the wheels were coming off the whole country. There was a fairly widespread agreement across both sides of the political aisle that the country needed to do something to crack down on its growing gun problem. After Bobby's death, Congress enacted the Gun Control Act of 1968, which passed the Senate with bipartisan support, 70 to 17. Even gun rights groups got behind it. After Ballou, that all changed. Gun owners, gun groups, and politicians alike were disturbed and dismayed by the raid. For good reason. The raid itself was inarguably poorly planned and poorly executed. Why dress in plain clothes? Why wait to serve the warrant at night? Why not investigate further before busting in? Why take the word of a confessed burglar in the first place? Viewed in the best light, the raid on Kenyon Blue looked stupid. In the worst, it looked like fascism. I'm almost 40 years old more than a decade younger than the Blue Raid. My whole life I've been watching and listening as people claim the government is coming for their guns, and it always seemed so histrionic, so ridiculous, so ginned up. And to be honest with you yet again, I do think that's largely true. But for those people like me that only see these concerns as absurd, take a step back. Seizing American guns might sound preposterous now, it might even be preposterous now, but it wasn't always. There's a root to that fear, and it is Kenyon Ballou. Two of his five grenades, they weren't just inoperable, they'd literally been made into bookends. He'd converted the other three into pop-cap-firing noisemakers for the 4th of July. Blue wasn't a would-be terrorist or a fast-fermenting assassin, he was a collector one of thousands around the country who were now not inappropriately concerned that they could be the ones shot in the face next. Which leads us to the National Rifle Association. Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. How well would you take care of your car if you had to keep the same one your entire life? That's how our brains work, so why don't we treat them that way? How we care for our minds affects how we experience life, so it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps. There's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. I think that everyone stands to benefit from therapy. It isn't just for when you've got a problem, it's like the general maintenance of your well-being. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only sessions so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash TheConstant. That's BetterHelp.com slash TheConstant. A puzzle. What would you do if your business had to hire great people fast? 
Here's a hint, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job descriptions the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. I'm telling you, no other job site takes care of you like Indeed, because with Indeed, you only have to pay if an applicant meets your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And Indeed's doing something no other job site has done. Now with Indeed, businesses only pay for quality applications matching the sponsored job description. Visit Indeed.com slash The Constant to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash The Constant. Indeed.com slash The Constant. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ah, there's that sound again. It's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility. Believe me, when this show started out, I was scraping together sponsorships from old friends and random emails. Today, we have internationally renowned businesses like Masterclass, Indeed, and of course, Shopify. Like mine, Shopify powers millions of businesses from first sale to full scale. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. Gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting on conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash the constant, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash the constant right now. Shopify.com slash the constant. Here's where I really start shedding friends, because I think that the NRA is something of a boogeyman for the American left. My fellow liberals tend to see the NRA as something like a cross between the Illuminati and the Eye of Sauron, all-seeing, all-powerful, corrupting the hearts of men while secretly sowing doom across the earth. When the truth is that the NRA is kind of a lightweight, particularly these days. They simply don't have the kind of clout and influence that the left tends to picture. Worse still, a lot of the clout and influence they do have, well, that's because there are a whole lot of Americans who largely agree with them. The image contemporary liberals have of the contemporary NRA isn't just wrong, it's damaging. Because it allows those seeking to enact gun reform to believe that the thing standing in their way is a malicious and ineffable force, a sort of supernatural entity. And I think that absolves them of thinking about the ways they've failed to enact and defend the policies they support. Now that I've buddied up a tiny bit to whatever gun rights folks are still listening, and if you are, 
I would like to say a sincere thank you. I'm legitimately impressed that you've come along so far, and I hope you'll keep up when I say that while liberals really do make an outsized deal out of the NRA, they are, in spite of that, a richly noxious organization. And while a lot of what they do and lobby for is stuff you might support, there's a whole lot of other stuff they've done that you might find pretty questionable. They just don't talk about that stuff as loudly anymore. For instance, in the wake of the Blue Raid, the NRA really ran with the story. If you were looking for a moment when they transformed from a gun safety and enthusiast organization into the more radically politicized machine they are today, the Blue Raid would be a strong choice. And yes, as I've said, they had their reasons. Not just the shooting of Kenyon Blue, but plenty of other botched gun confiscations that followed. Which are all aside from the two real gun control disasters of the American 20th century, the standoff at Ruby Ridge, Idaho in August of 1992, and the even more catastrophic standoff with the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas in the spring of 1993. We definitely don't have time to go into Ruby Ridge and Waco, but if you're not familiar with both events, and hell, even if you think you are, I recommend finding some sources on them. Slate has a podcast called Standoff about Ruby Ridge, and uh, well, there are too many podcasts about David Koresh and the Branch Davidians for me to even sift through. Suffice it to say that I happen to think those two events are the most important points for understanding all American politics that have followed. And as it happens, they're also both stupefying examples of the government doing a bad job handling guns. What all of these things, from the Blue Raid through Waco, showed gun rights advocates was that the government was either inept, corrupt, malicious, or some combination of the three, and that they absolutely couldn't and shouldn't be trusted to regulate firearms. For the NRA, that meant waging a decades-long war on the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. A war that they no doubt believe to be justified, but which they've waged dishonestly in every direction, spreading disinformation about the Bureau to the public and camouflaging the things they've done to try to hobble a federal agency. For a while, the NRA was happy to talk loudly about the ATF. ATF was the same kind of boogeyman to the right that I've argued the NRA is to the left. So much so that when Reagan proposed dismantling the ATF and folding the agency into the Secret Service, the NRA put the kibosh on that plan. Having the ATF out there as a visible enemy was just too good for business. And anyway, as long as federal regulation of firearms was exclusively the purview of one agency, it was easy enough to contain and limit their power. If the Secret Service or the FBI or the U.S. Marshals were out there trying to enforce gun laws, it'd be hard to stop them. You'd have to craft complicated and unpopular laws that affected the whole government. But if the ATF were the only ones on the gun beat, then all you had to do to prevent government meddling in guns would be to kneecap the ATF. And so that is what they did. Since the lion's share of the remainder of this story is going to be about the ATF, it's probably worth taking a few minutes to explain what exactly ATF is and how it came to be. The ATF is a weird organization on a whole bunch of levels. Most obviously, it's Portfolio, which feels like somebody got last pick for the gym class dodgeball team. I'll take, uh, alcohol, um, tobacco, and, uh, firearms. Oh, and explosives. 
That analogy isn't totally wrong either. Through its history, the ATF and its predecessors seem like they were a dumping ground for responsibilities that other agencies didn't want or weren't ready to handle. The first seeds of what eventually became the ATF were planted way back in the earliest days of the United States. The year was 1790, the American colonists had won the Revolutionary War and achieved independence. But that victory came at significant cost. Most of the states had gone into deep debt financing the war, and they had little way to generate revenue and dig their way out of the hole again. The fledgling United States was less than a decade old, and it was already teetering on bankruptcy. Along came... Alexander Hamilton, George Washington's Treasury Secretary, with a radical plan for saving the nation. He reached a deal with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison to place the capital at Washington, D.C. The specifics of how that deal was struck are mysterious because... I'm not proud. I won't do it again. I'm sorry. Aside from establishing Washington, D.C. as the U.S. Capitol, the most important result of that infamous dinner was an agreement that the federal treasury would assume the state's debts. Which might not sound like a very good deal for Hamilton, but he had a plan for how to pay those debts down. In the 1790s, the United States was producing a lot of whiskey. Before the revolution, the colonists' drink of choice was rum, but most of that rum was imported from Barbados, which was under British control. With King George a little bit miffed at his former subjects, the supply dried up and the need for an alternative arose. Luckily, the colonists were growing a whole lot of grain, much more than they could sell in sober product lines. They began converting the excess into beer, but transporting beer through the undeveloped frontier via horse and carriage was difficult. And by the time it got where it was going, most of it would have spoiled. But if you distilled that beer, you could create a more stable, transportable product. And as an added bonus, it packed a hell of a kick. Whiskey. Alexander Hamilton was sitting on a mountain of debt, and the only source of revenue he had was a tax on foreign imports, which was already as high as the market could bear. So he lobbied for the nation's first domestic tax on the many, many, many distilleries around the 13 colonies. But not all of those distilleries bore the burden equally. Western Pennsylvania was replete with whiskey-worthy grain, but light on business. The East was dominated by large-scale industrial distilleries, whereas the Western whiskey makers were mostly individual farmers, making what they could out of their surplus grain at the end of the season. Under Hamilton's new whiskey tax, people paid based on how much they made, transported, and sold. The big distilleries in the East got a bulk tax break, just six cents per gallon. The small farmers, on the other hand, had to cough up nine. Special tax collectors working for the Treasury, called excise officers, were sent west to collect the tax, where they immediately found that many of the farmers were refusing to pay, and they weren't exactly polite about it. In fact, they were planning something of a revolution of their own. On September 11, 1791, 11 men in western Pennsylvania disguised themselves as women and ambushed an excise officer named Robert Johnson. They tarred and feathered him and left him in the woods to die. But he didn't. 
Johnson survived. What's more, he recognized two of the men who'd attacked him through their disguises and got a warrant for their arrests. When John Connor went out to exercise those warrants, he was attacked too and left tied to a tree. It was the beginning of the United States' first real civil strife, the Whiskey Rebellion. For the next few years, there was scattered violence and general unrest in western Pennsylvania, which culminated when 7,000 armed farmers marched on the city of Pittsburgh and President Washington called up an army to put the mob back. The Whiskey Rebellion changed a lot of things about the new United States of America. It established a strong federal government, supreme over states and localities. It became a rallying point for Thomas Jefferson and a primary reason he defeated John Adams to become president in 1800. And it helped to foment the first of many two-party political systems that the country has lived with until this very day. And it showed that alcohol had a very special place, not just with the American people, but with the American government. Four score and some number of years later, the federal government again turned to taxing alcoholic spirits, this time to help pay for the costly and brutal war against the Southern slavers calling themselves the Confederate States of America. Abraham Lincoln formed the Office of Internal Revenue in 1862 with a special emphasis on taxing booze and tobacco. But just like in the 1790s, distillers immediately began skirting the law and forming an organized black market to traffic in illegal liquor. So, the next year, Congress authorized three agents to track, investigate, and apprehend the tax evaders. It was the first time in U.S. history that law enforcement and tax regulators became one, and that would be the basis of the eventual Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. The Alcohol Tax Evaders Unit was made an official agency of the Treasury in 1886 under the anodyne name the Revenue Laboratory. Since the Revenue Laboratory mainly dealt with alcohol anyway, it was only natural that it became the agency in charge of enforcing prohibition after the Volstead Act and the 18th Amendment made booze illegal. They were renamed the Bureau of Prohibition, with their most famous agent being, of course, Elliot Ness and his untouchables, who battled the mob in, that's right, Chicago. Chicago in the 1920s was a forge that melded black market alcohol and guns. Al Capone and his Southside Italian outfit engaged in a bloody war of territory with Bugs Moran's Northside Irish one, culminating in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, where some never-identified group, which likely included Capone's Confederates and some Chicago police officers, murdered seven members of the Northside outfit in a Lincoln Park warehouse. Getting control of the country's illicit alcohol problem and its illicit gun problem had become one and the same. When Prohibition was repealed in 1933, the Bureau was renamed the Alcohol Tax Unit and the ATU was given implicit authority over guns, which was then made explicit in 1942. Then the Bureau of Internal Revenue became the IRS everyone knows and loves today. The ATU was renamed too. Under the IRS, they also oversaw taxing and regulation of tobacco. So they became the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax Division, or ATTD. Finally, in 1968, following the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and Bobby Kennedy, 
Congress passed the Gun Control Act of 1968, which expanded the powers and responsibilities of ATTD for a greater focus on firearms, as well as explosives. They were now both regulator and enforcement for federal laws regarding alcohol and tobacco, but especially firearms and explosives. Which called for yet another name change, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms which then raided the apartment of Kenyon Ballou and shot him in the head. The Kenyon Ballou raid was a turning point for guns in America. Gun owners, advocacy groups, and conservatives of various stripes who had been relatively sanguine about reasonable firearm regulations quickly began to about-face. Once more, not for no reason, but while there were legitimate concerns following the raids, Concerns that were only accentuated by Ruby Ridge and Waco in the 90s, it's also clear that lobbyists swung way harder than the pitch. Particularly the NRA, who actively mischaracterized the circumstances of the raid in order to further their newfound partisan aims. They said that Blue had been shot while taking a bath, a lie that's persisted in many sources up to today. Wanting to make him a more moral victim, they pretended that Sarah Louise McNeil was Baloo's wife instead of his girlfriend. They said that the gun Baloo was holding when agents breached was fake when the shot fired into the floor showed it was very much real. While the ATF was muzzled by Baloo's lawsuit, the NRA entered the vacuum to frame a narrative where Baloo wasn't just a gun collector, but a patriotic Boy Scout leader who had done nothing wrong. At their annual convention, they brought Baloo out on stage in a wheelchair with a sign around his neck that read, Victim of the Gun Control Act. The NRA was quickly transforming into an absolutist organization, and their chief enemy, as they saw it, was the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. In 1978, their chief lobbyist, Neil Knox, publicly declared war on the Bureau. In those terms... I know what I said, that the NRA is largely a boogeyman, more powerful in the minds of their opponents than in the halls of Congress, and that is true. Most of the time, when the NRA manages to get something done, it's not because of their own gravitas, but because of the collective voice of their many members and supporters. But other times, the NRA is, and has been, able to make real changes to the functioning of this country. Mostly, those times have been when they've worked more quietly, supporting lobbying, and even personally writing bills that focus on minutiae that don't get a lot of public attention. Like their war on a federal agency that most Americans don't think about at all. And if they do, it's mostly to wonder why their portfolio seems like such an arbitrary list of stuff. Alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and explosives. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Mayor Rahm Emanuel commissioned a study to answer the question of where Chicago's guns were coming from, it was a difficult question to answer. Because the agency whose job answering that question was the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms had long been barred from doing so, based on laws that were literally written and driven through Congress by the National Rifle Association. In 2003, Representative William Todd Teart of Kansas introduced a series of congressional riders, literally drafted by the NRA, that barred the ATF from releasing its firearm trace data to cities, states, researchers, litigants, and members of the public. Which made it really, really effing hard for Mayor Emanuel, the Chicago PD, and the University of Chicago to answer the seemingly simple question, where are all these guns coming from? Nevertheless, they managed. And what they found was infuriating on so many levels. Now, if you are already well acquainted with the endless wash cycle of the American gun control debate, you probably think you already know what the 2017 Chicago Gun Trace report said. Illegal guns in Chicago come from areas with looser gun laws, particularly just across the state line in Indiana. And if that's what you think... Well, you're not exactly wrong, but you're definitely missing the whole picture. It's true that less than half of Chicago's illegal guns come from within Illinois, about 40% of them, which does seem to suggest that local and state gun laws do deter illegal firearms. If Illinois and Chicago's gun laws didn't work at all, you'd expect that most of Chicago's illegal guns would come from here. And it's true that 21% of those guns come from our next-door neighbor, Indiana, which has very permissive gun laws. The next state on the list is even more suggestive. More than 5% of Chicago's illegal guns come from Mississippi. You have to pass through two other states and the entire long length of Illinois to get to Mississippi from Chicago, which makes the prevalence of Mississippi guns in the city somewhat mysterious. But not that mysterious. Mississippi has extremely permissive gun laws, much more so even than Indiana. It's so easy to get a gun in Mississippi that people are willing to travel roughly 800 miles from Chicago to do so. In the typical gun debate, the bell bings out, what about Chicago? Chicago has the strictest gun laws in the country. No, it doesn't, but whatever. And the other side answers with the bong, people are bringing guns into Chicago from states with loose gun laws like Indiana and Mississippi. That's what. Bing, bong, bing, bong. But that is not the whole story by a good long stretch. After all, 40% of Chicago's guns are coming from Illinois, which supposedly has those strict gun laws. And the two biggest sellers aren't just in Illinois, they're right outside the city, within Cook County. Between 2013 and 2016, according to the Gun Trace report, nearly 7% of all the seized illegal guns in Chicago came from just one store. That's roughly five 
hundred firearms per year from one place. Chuck's Gun Shop in Riverdale, one of those south suburbs that you can call Chicago without getting too much pushback. The second place store was Midwest Sporting Goods in Lyons, Illinois, just south of Riverside. Four and a half percent of guns seized in Chicago during the period came from Midwest. Sure, Indiana is well represented on the top ten list. West Force Sports in Gary, the Cabela's Sporting Goods in Hammond, Bly's Sports Shop in Griffith, each sold more than a hundred handguns each year that ended up in crimes in Chicago. But if someone says that gun control in Illinois doesn't work, and you shoot back, yes, it does. Only several thousand confiscated illegal guns per year come from here. Well, I don't think you're going to win anybody over. I said that if we knew where all the guns were coming from, we'd have our answer. But that was a bit of a fib, because the answer to that question sends us down to the real honking question. Not where, but how. Each year, CPD confiscates roughly 7,000 crime guns within city limits, out of who knows how many more that they miss. These guns aren't being seized because of a tip from a newspaper boy moonlighting as a cat burglar. They're being seized because they never should have been here in the first place. They're not registered, they're not licensed, they aren't in the possession of the people who bought them, and they're being used to rob, steal, intimidate, and murder. I think almost everyone can agree that those guns shouldn't be on the street, right? And that they shouldn't be getting to the street in the first place. So how does that happen? And how does it continue to happen, given that we have a pretty good idea of where they're coming from? The answer, once again, is the NRA and the ATF, and the former's war upon the latter. The 2003 TRT Amendment isn't the only way the ATF has been kept from doing its job. Not by a long shot. And actually, I haven't even told you the full breadth of what the Tiart Amendment does. Yes, it prohibits the ATF from using, publishing, or sharing gun trace data with basically anyone, but it also makes it so gun dealers can't be made to share their inventories with law enforcement. So they never have to tell anyone about firearms that are lost, stolen, or sold under the table unless they want to, which, quel surprise, they don't. The amendment makes gun trace data inadmissible in any and all civil cases. It makes it illegal for ATF to publish statistics of its own, for them to say anything about how or how many felons are receiving illegal guns. It prevents ATF from saying almost anything about illegal firearms traffickers or the channels they're using to traffic, which, I mean, are you listening to me? Congress passed a law written by the NRA that says the agency tasked with dealing with illegal gun trafficking can't publish or share information about illegal gun trafficking. Under the TR Amendment, when ATF does furnish FBI with gun trace records, the FBI is required to fully destroy them within 24 hours. And when you know it, another gun lobby-backed writer makes firearm regulation basically solely the domain of ATF and prevents them from working with other agencies or law enforcement offices in most cases. So, then, how do guns get into Chicago? It's terrifically, frustratingly, gut-wrenchingly simple. There's a whole cadre of what we call straw purchasers, people who make a living off of buying guns from gun stores and then selling them illegally to others. They can't be stopped. 
because of a series of laws and riders lobbied for by the gun lobby and passed mostly by Republican members of Congress. Gun stores around the area, in state and out, either knowingly or unknowingly, but in most cases probably knowingly, help facilitate those sales because the law says that as long as you can't prove they knew what was happening, which is practically impossible, there's no penalty. No doubt many of these gun stores go even further, selling weapons under the table, which can't be discovered because they're not required to keep an inventory, and even if they do, the ATF can't have it. When a weapon is found at the scene of a crime here in Chicago, the CPD turns to the ATF to trace where it came from, because, by law, ATF are the only ones who are allowed to. But what they're not allowed to do is keep a database of gun sales. So, when they instigate a trace, it immediately turns into a game of phone tag, played with one hand tied behind their backs. The ATF's Gun Trace Center takes the serial number of the weapon and calls up the manufacturer to ask what store or dealer they shipped it to. If the manufacturer knows, sometimes they don't, and can find the information, sometimes they can't, they then tell the ATF, who then have to call that store. Licensed firearm dealers are required to keep records of sales, the same records the ATF aren't allowed to have, but how and where they keep those records is up to them. So, when the gun trace request comes to the store, they sift through whatever system they have or don't have. If they can't find the record, oh well. If the record is incomplete, tough cookies. If they sold the gun under the counter because the person buying it was a felon or was purchasing multiple weapons and didn't want a record of that, or because the store knew the buyer was going to resell the weapon illegally, not much anybody can do about it. About 30% of gun trace requests die on the vine before ATF can even find the original buyer. In the event they can, there's rarely anything they can do about it. At best, they might be able to slap the buyer with a small fine for violating minor clerical laws in the paperwork. Usually, they don't bother. But what if the ATF finds that the original store that sold the gun has gone out of business? Now, that is where things get truly absurd. When a licensed firearm dealer folds, they're required to send their records to the ATF. Since those records can be, and sometimes literally are, written on napkins, they're somewhat difficult to sort. Luckily for the ATF, they don't have to, because it is against the law for them to make any sort of coherent system for the records they receive. Up until recently, they were prohibited from even using computers. Like, at all. Nowadays, they're allowed to scan records into PDFs, but only so long as they don't organize those PDFs in any way that they can search through them. The ATF gets around 1,500 trace requests every day. Each one requires multiple phone calls or searching through unorganized PDF files or even going to physical stacks of paper that are packed so thick and high that a few years ago, the floor of the National Tracing Center in Martinsburg, West Virginia, partially collapsed under their weight. And to handle all this ridiculous, labyrinthine work, the ATF employs about 50 people. The undermanning and underfunding of the National Tracing Center is emblematic of the entire bureau. The funding and personnel levels at ATF have basically remained flat for the last 30 years. There are far fewer ATF agents nationwide than there are police officers in Chicago. And I mean far fewer, like roughly 25 times fewer by my estimate. Pretty bad, huh? Well, it gets worse. 
One of the jobs that doesn't exist at ATF is the top one. In 2006, Republicans passed a law that made the director of the ATF a Senate-confirmed position. No one can become boss of ATF without the Senate's approval. Since 2006, Republicans in the Senate have successfully blocked anyone from taking the seat, aside from Byron Todd Jones, whom Barack Obama managed to squeeze through back in 2013. Jones left the position two years later, and there's been no permanent director since. Without a big boss, chosen officially by the president, the culture at ATF has suffered significantly. Legally, the ATF can't suspend a firearm dealer's license or even impose a fine, even when the dealer is selling guns to straw purchasers or other illegal buyers. If they can prove the dealer was making those sales knowingly, they can slap them with a misdemeanor, which they barely ever do, because what's the point? But it's hard for them to prove anyway, since they don't have, legally cannot have, the records that would prove their cases. They can audit gun sellers, but only once per year because of another gun lobby draft law. Even still, they don't. There aren't enough agents to do yearly audits on the 54,000 licensed gun sellers. The agency aims to get around to each of them once every five years. It's not clear whether they regularly meet even that modest goal. The leaderless culture at ATF means that even when agents clear all of those hoops, there's still little they can do. Remember that top 10 list of illegal gun dealers the 2017 Gun Trace Report compiled? Most of them have run afoul of the ATF before. Take West Force Sports in Gary, Indiana. Between 1989 and 2011, they were audited by ATF eight times. And each time, the Bureau found that West Forth was not recording large numbers of gun sales at all. And each time, the ATF slapped West Forth with a warning. When they audited Westworth again in 2012, they found the same thing. And this time, they decided to take action and revoke Westforth's license to sell firearms. But that is a major step, and it barely ever happens. In Westforth's case, it didn't. ATF agents were told to pause because of a supposed criminal investigation, but that criminal investigation either never came to anything or never actually happened or existed. And when ATF tried to resume revoking Westforce license a year later, they were told that it was too late, that they would have to audit the store again to see if things had improved. They hadn't. A 2013 inspection showed that Westforth hadn't just failed to keep records, they'd actually falsified records and covered up multiple straw sales. The inspectors concluded, yet again, that Westforth should lose its license. Without an official, permanent director to stand up for that action, it again didn't happen. Instead, the final say went to the Columbus Field Division, whose director softened the sentence. Instead of revoking West Force Sports firearms license, they instead issued another warning. This is the cultural problem. Higher-ups at ATF are either scared of attracting more attention from the gun lobby, or else they've just plain become captured by them. To some degree, it sure seems as if groups like the NRA haven't just hobbled the Bureau, they've infiltrated it. Last year, the city of Chicago decided to step up where the ATF stood down. The city sued West Force Sports with the help of every town for gun safety. The suit alleges that, quote, For more than a decade, defendant West Force Sports, Inc. has engaged in a pattern of illegal sales that has resulted in the flow of hundreds, if not thousands, of illegal firearms into the city of Chicago. 
Westforth feeds the market for illegal firearms by knowingly selling its products to an ever-changing roster of gun traffickers and straw purchasers who transport Westforth guns from Indiana into Chicago, where they are resold to individuals who cannot legally possess firearms, including convicted felons and drug traffickers. Chicago alleges that between 2014 and 2021, approximately 44% of all federal prosecutions for illegal gun purchases in northern Indiana traced back to one store, Westforth. To quote from the suit again, court documents show that Westforth is known to have sold at least 180 guns to at least 40 people later charged with federal crimes in connection with these purchases. Whether that lawsuit ends up being successful or not, it's hard to see it making much of a difference. Civil actions are neither broad nor nimble enough to take on the tens of thousands of guns flowing illegally into the city of Chicago every year. We need something more. On the 4th of July, a man climbed onto a rooftop in Highland Park with a high-powered rifle and opened fire on the city's annual Independence Day parade wounding 46, killing seven, and again reopening the still fresh and gaping wound of American gun violence. Meanwhile, 30 miles south in the city of Chicago, 57 people were shot and nine killed, which has become to most Americans entirely routine. I find both sides of the endless gun debate in America totally exhausting. On the left, mass shootings like the terrible tragedy in Highland Park bring out immediate calls for gun control. But most of those calls are for things like banning assault weapons, or high-capacity magazines, or red flag laws, or closing the gun show loophole. And don't get me wrong, I'm not necessarily against things like that. I'm skeptical that those sorts of laws would make much of a difference in stopping mass shootings, but I still think they're probably worth a try. What they definitely wouldn't do, though, is anything about the bigger scourge of gun violence in America which is overwhelmingly perpetrated by handguns, mostly semi-automatics, mostly 9mm. And it wouldn't do shit to help Chicago neighborhoods like Austin or Greater Grand Crossings or Inglewood, where I once taught high school. These are communities that suffer weekly, and with them we all suffer as a nation. We're just so numb to it that even those who seem to care don't really. And look, I get it. There are real differences between events like Highland Park and the regular din of gunfire that infects the city of Chicago. Mass shootings are inherently conspicuous. They're inherently arbitrary. They're deliberately destabilizing to places that are usually pretty stable. But let's be honest, folks. Isn't at least some of the difference just that we don't care about black people being killed the same way we care about white people? I'm not saying you individually, not necessarily, but collectively, we just don't care the same way. In part because we're used to it. All of us, white, black, brown, most of us have concluded to some degree that so-called inner city violence is just a natural state of affairs, just a fact of life, the regular order. The aberration is the school shooting, the mall shooting, the parade shooting. So that's what we talk about. And meanwhile... The loudest voices talking about the violence in Chicago are the people who literally passed the laws that make the violence in Chicago possible. They've developed a rhetoric where they use the very deregulation they've masterminded to argue for further deregulation. And they've gotten a lot of people to believe it and spew the line that they invented. 
Why? It's pretty easy. I mean, I'll grant you that there are people in the gun lobby, in the Republican Party, even in the NRA, who actually believe that what they're doing is preventing tyranny. But what they're mostly doing is ensuring that gun manufacturers, gun shops, and straw purchasers can make millions of dollars every year selling weapons that they know will be used illegally to steal, intimidate, and murder American citizens. I mean, really think about that. If there were a foreign country who was selling arms into the United States, which were killing hundreds and thousands of Americans every year, we wouldn't just stop it. Hell, we would bomb that country. That is happening every day of every week of every year, and people are making a fortune off of it. They're criminals. They should be driven out of polite society. In a rational world, they'd be brought before the Hague. Instead, they have us doing their bidding. Half of us are towing their ironic party line, disparaging the very cities that they are laying waste to, and the other half of us are too distracted to do anything about it. The odds are that between the time I'm recording this and the time you're listening, there will have been another mass shooting here in the United States. If not, it's coming. Sooner than later. We all know that. What to do about that is a really tough problem, and it's one that our current debate doesn't seem able to tackle. But we can do something about the hundreds of murders that happen in Chicago every year, and in Baltimore, and St. Louis, and Philadelphia, and cities all across the country. We can save so many lives, and we don't even have to argue much to do it. Because all of us agree that people shouldn't be able to illegally buy and sell guns with virtual impunity. We all agree that if there are illegal arms dealers selling weapons to murder Americans, we should stop that. I'm sure that at least the overwhelming majority of us agree that when a gun is used to kill someone, we should be able to trace that gun without seven phone calls and a microfilm machine. If you're scoffing even at that, can we at least agree that ATF firearms inspectors ought to be able to carry firearms? Or at least badges? Yeah, they don't even get badges. That is where we're at right now. Most of the laws that hamstring the ATF aren't even really laws at all. They're riders slipped into appropriations bills. Representative Bill Pascrell of New Jersey and Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont have a bill, the Crime Gun Tracing Modernization Act, which would put an end to the Kafka-esque farce that is the current intentionally kneecapped system. The Gun Records Restoration and Preservation Act, sponsored by Congresswoman Barbara Lee and Senator Bob Menendez, would repeal the TR amendments. The Trafficking Reduction and Criminal Enforcement Act, introduced by Representative Mike Quigley of Illinois this year, would do similar good. If you've listened to this whole thing, especially if you're represented by a Republican, I'm urging you to write them. Let them know that you support modest, common-sense changes in our law that would allow the ATF to trace crime guns and to pursue the illegal arms dealers who are sowing death and mayhem over this nation. Let them know that they should support confirming a permanent director to lead the agency. And if that doesn't work, there's another path. Dissolve the ATF. If we can't get the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms to be funded and treated like a real federal agency with an important mission, then all it is is a convenient buffer and scapegoat for black market arms dealers. And we should get rid of it. 
put regulating firearms and pursuing gun crimes in the hands of the FBI, who the gun lobby won't be able to control or freeze out or starve for resources. And if you don't even agree with that, then at least do me one favor. Stop taking my city, one of the most beautiful, caring, interesting, and delicious cities in the world, and dragging its name through the mud to simp for a bunch of chicken hawks who are getting rich off of killing us. And when you hear someone sound the old bell asking what about Chicago, send them my way. Because they deserve to know. Music for today's episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. As I said in the intro, I'm a half-decent researcher, but I hardly needed to be to make this episode. All of the issues discussed here have been raised by journalists, researchers, and advocacy groups. They've just never struck a big popular chord. If you'd like to read more, I'm including links to a whole bunch of stories and reports in the episode description and on our website, constantpodcast.com. Please share them around and help spread awareness along with this episode, if you found it useful. It's my hope that eventually we'll be able to create the momentum necessary to save lives. That's all it'll take, not money, not persuasion, not power, not even elections. Momentum can do this all on its own. So let's build some. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant. The Constant.